This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. We're going to hear from some old friends, we think, uh, before this hour is up. But we're not clear on who and we're not clear on when, so we'll have to see how this evolves. Let us begin the program as we like to do with On This Date in History. The date in question is the 15th of July. It was on July 15th in 1795 that La Marseillaise, written in 1792 by Roger de Lisle, and I'm probably butchering that, was officially adopted as the French national anthem. And I have to say, as national anthems go, this one kicks the crap out of ours. 20 years later on this date, July 15th, 1815, British oarsman row Napoleon Bonaparte from his last home in France to the HMS Bellerophon, where he surrendered to Captain Frederick Maitland, thinking he might be allowed to live in exile in Britain. He was in fact transferred to the HMS Northumberland and didn't touch land until they put him on St. Helena in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, where he lived out his days. Some say he was slowly poisoned there, and he probably was. He was one of history's most remarkable individuals, but in the end, just a little too troublesome for most people. On this date in 1869, Hippolyte Megamores of Paris received a patent for margarine, which was originally created for use by the French Navy. For some reason, people think margarine is healthier for you than butter. It isn't. On this date in 1922, the first live duck-billed platypus arrived in America directly from Australia, where it was exhibited in the Bronx Zoo. Previous stuffed specimens had been considered fakes. And finally, it was on this date, July 15th, during the Eisenhower administration, that this correspondent was born. Which means that, yes, today I'm turning 39. Again. If it was good enough for the immortal Jack Benny, it's certainly good enough for me. Our quote of the day comes from writer Andre Gede, who said, The true hypocrite is the one who ceases to perceive his deception, the one who lies with sincerity. Our quote of the day comes from Jay Leno, who noted that a few days back, Spain won the World Cup by a score of one to nothing. Said Leno, after 118 minutes of play, someone finally kicked a goal. Adding, you know who has the easiest job at the World Cup? The scorekeeper. Our bonus dumb quote of the day comes from former presidential candidate Mitt Romney, who deemed President Obama's nuclear disarmament treaty his worst foreign policy mistake. Which caused even the ever more right-wing Newsweek to add, if that's true, things must be going pretty well. Our jokes of the day come from an assortment of headlines from The Humor Times. We'll just pick a few. How about, after failing to clean oil spill, BP makes no promises on station restrooms. Or, scientists say Neanderthal human connection may explain Glenn Beck. Here's one I like. 
Citing Elena Kagan's lack of judging experience, GOP proposes Paula Abdul. And how about Census Bureau outsources canvassing to Jehovah's Witnesses? Our stat of the day is that according to the Marist Institute, 26% of Americans don't know that the country won its independence from Great Britain. That 26% apparently named various countries from France to China to Mexico. And this may offer a partial explanation of who watches Fox News. And our bonus stat of the day comes from New Scientist magazine when it made casual mention of the fact that the human body contains about seven octillion molecules. We noted on last week's show that uh, it was very rare that one would ever cite anything in the octillions. And while that was true, I was amused to note that the number popped up the day after I said that. Kind of like when you learn a new word and you think, I've never really seen that word before, and then you notice it all over the paper the next day. And no, we're not sure whether octillions are going to be converted into hella yet. And yes, we're still waiting for some local feedback on that uh, on that effort. So uh, Austin Sendak or anyone uh, who knows him, please drop us a line at info at Radio Parallax. We want to talk about this. And we have a bonus stat today sent to us by Matt that during a World Cup soccer match, the average player handles the ball one minute. That's right, one minute. Matt is planning to come on the show in the next couple of weeks to upbraid me about my bad attitude about the World Cup. I guess I'll just make sure I tank up on quite a bit of caffeine before we have that discussion. Mr. McMillan will attempt to obtain a vuvuzela. And frankly, God help us all. And you know, we have one more bonus stat for today's program. Apparently, Joan Ginter, described as a 63-year-old former college math professor who did earn her doctorate from Stanford, has hit her fourth Texas lottery jackpot. She's done this with three scratch-off tickets and one lottery draw. We don't believe she did make just four attempts, but if she had, the odds of her winning four lotteries would be 1 in 18 septillion, which would be about 0.18 hella, if some have their way. Of course, she undoubtedly bought more than four tickets, and there's undoubtedly more to this story than random chance. Spokesman for the Texas Lottery Commission said the agency had never investigated Ginther's winnings, but described their verification system for possible fraud as thorough. And we'd love to hear from someone at the, from the math department, actually from any math department, uh, about this somewhat unlikely occurrence. I mean, $10 million this year, $5.4 million in 93, $2 million in 06, and $3 million in 08. There's more to this story. Why don't we jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly. It was a good week last week for impotence when a new study found that the rate of STDs in men over 40 who take erectile dysfunction drugs such as Viagra is double that of men who don't use these medications. This just in, traffic accident rate among drivers twice that of non-drivers. 
Folks, if you have ED, please don't let that boneheaded stat stop you from seeking treatment. According to The Week magazine, it was a bad week last week for edgy Iranians in the wake of Iran banning decadent Western haircuts for men, which which included spiky hair, ponytails, and mullets. And shockingly, we apparently again find ourselves in agreement with at least some of the ayatollahs in Iran, at least on the mullets. And speaking of Iranian haircuts, Mr. Merlin and I are planning to bring our haircutter on the program, who is of Iranian extraction, to talk about the fact that when they made a movie here called Prince of Persia, they used an actor who was half Swedish and half Russian Jew. Good actor, Jake Gyllenhaal, but about as Persian as the Prince of Wales. It was finally an ugly week for Los Angeles, after IBM's Commuter Pain Index ranked L.A. as the worst city in the U.S. for commuting by car. That's because of its frequent traffic jams, incidents of road rage, and other irritations, like maybe the smog. L.A., which got a pain rating of 25, still fared better than Beijing and Mexico City, whose pain ratings of 99 on a scale of 100 were rated worst in the world. All right, and from the Only in Australia file, we have the following. And and I'm just going to read this one. A man ejected from a pub in Australia broke into a zoo and climbed onto the back of a crocodile named Fatso, which bit him in the leg but let him go, say police. The police said they were surprised the croc didn't inflict worse damage. According to the AP, the 36-year-old man was tossed from the pub for being drunk. He told officials he scaled the barbed wire fence surrounding the Broom Crocodile Park in northwest Australia because he wanted to give the 16-foot fatso a pat. And again, quoting from police, He's attempted to sit on its back, and the croc has taken offense to that and has spun around and bit him on the right leg. The AP goes on. The croc then inexplicably let the man go, and he climbed back over the fence to safety. You know, we're really quite fond of Australia. We're looking forward to bringing our Australian correspondent, Dr. Peter Donahue, back on this show sometime soon. But in the meantime, we can't resist quoting from an essay by James Valentine from The Australian. Queried James Valentine, Why can't Australia just tell the truth? Our cheesy tourism campaigns focus relentlessly on things like marsupials, surf, sand, snorkeling, and our oh-so-70s opera house. Australia does offer these attractions in Sydney, but what about the rest of this vast, sun-blasted, largely empty country? The outback, where most tourists picture themselves camping, is incredibly flat and consists of large areas of nothing, interspersed with small towns containing nothing of any interest. Before you get to the middle of nowhere, of course. We could boast to tourists that it's all very restful. Or for those who want adventure, we could emphasize our vast stock of things that will kill you. Australia has more poisonous snakes, jellyfish, scorpions, and spiders than anywhere else. Plus crocodiles. And speaking of things that will kill you, there's the Tim Tam. Creamy chocolate sandwiched between two chocolate biscuits covered in chocolate. Valentine closed with, Does my spiel sound less enticing? Well, that's part of being Australian too. 
We're a big, flat Western nation with a tiny population and a confused sense of self. Come here and be amazed that we exist at all. All right, let's look around California and talk about some uh, items closer to home. Article by Kelly Zito, Chronicle staff writer, notes that uh, there's currently uh, a lawsuit about California's water bank. A group of environmentalists, sports fishermen, and Delta farmers have said that control of California's largest underground water bank was illegally bestowed on a handful of private, wealthy agriculture and real estate companies in the 1990s. This is referring to the Kern Water Bank, a vast system of wells, pipelines, and underground cisterns spread over 20,000 acres in the southern San Joaquin Valley, which was developed as a key surplus reservoir by California in the late 1980s. After sinking about $75 million into the bank, however, the state handed it over to the Kern County Water Agency in 1995 in exchange for some other water rights. We need to get Dan Bacher on this show to talk more about, uh, about this. This being California's ongoing water wars. Governor Schwarzenegger, of course, would like to bequeath, before he goes, uh, a great gift to Southern California, that being the Peripheral Canal. One has to wonder if uh, the whole purpose of the recall of Gray Davis wasn't to put Arnold Schwarzenegger in position to do this. And it's curious to note that the governor's approval rating has now dropped to a record low 22% tying him with Gray Davis just before the whole recall business. The governor's disapproval rate, 70% and dropping, means that before he's through, he could be the most unpopular governor in California history, which Radio Parallax finds kind of sad. We, We do think there were and are some things to like about Arnold Schwarzenegger. And speaking of movie star governors who appeared in Predator... We're knocked out by Jesse Ventura's book, American Conspiracies. The number of people that he quotes in the text and cites in the bibliography uh, coincides rather astonishingly with our guests on this program. Among them, Lisa Pease, James Eugenio, David Talbot, Talbot, William Turner, Barbara Honiger, Peter Dale Scott, Michael Levine, Greg Pallast, Robert Perry, and Jerry Polikoff. Actually, there's a bunch more I'm not even thinking of. But at any rate, this is a well-researched book, and we're going to do our level best to bring uh, co-authors Jesse Ventura and Dick Russell on to this show. But the book has some great quotes I think we'll uh, borrow from uh, for today's show. How about this one? Too much cannot be said against the men of wealth who sacrifice everything to getting wealth. There is not in the world a more ignoble character than the mere money-getting American insensible to every duty, regardless of every principle, bent only on amassing a fortune and putting his fortune only to the basest uses. A quote from The Nation magazine? No, a quote from future President Teddy Roosevelt said in 1895. How about a more contemporary quote referring to our current economic woes? In today's regulatory environment, it's virtually impossible to violate rules. And this is something the public really doesn't know. That quote is from Bernie Madoff, whom the Securities Exchange Commission knew 
five years ago was running a Ponzi scheme, but was unable to prosecute despite six investigations of him. Well, we suspect the reason is, according to the horse's mouth himself, uh, in today's regulatory environment, it's virtually impossible to violate rules. How about this one from the author himself? It's astounding to consider that we have more private soldiers, 74,000, than uniformed troops, 57,000, in Afghanistan as of the summer of 2009. I think of that bumper sticker from the 1960s. War is good business. Invest your son. And now let's go out with some good news for segment one. Article from the Los Angeles Times by Jim Puzanegra and Meg James notes that in a sharp rebuke of the Bush-era crackdown on foul language on broadcast television and radio, a federal appeals court this Tuesday struck down the government's near-zero-tolerance indecency policy as a violation of the First Amendment protection of free speech. The ruling is described as a major victory for the broadcast TV networks, which jointly sued the FCC in 2006. A three-judge panel of the Second U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals did not have the power to strike down the 1978 Supreme Court decision that affirmed the FCC's right to, po- to police the airwaves for objectionable content, but it revised the aggressive stance the agency took starting in 2004 that found even a slip of the tongue that got by network censors was a violation subject to fines for all stations that aired it. The court ruled that the policy on so-called fleeting expletives was unconstitutionally vague and created a chilling effect on the programming that broadcasters chose to air. The court echoed complaints from network executives that the FCC standard was nearly impossible to gauge. U.S. Circuit Judge Rosemary Pooler wrote in the 3 to nothing decision, Indeed, there's ample evidence in the record that the FCC's indecency policy has chilled protected speech. Fox Broadcast Company, which was the lead plaintiff in the case, cheered the ruling. and We find ourselves oddly on the same size as Rupert Murdoch on this one. How the this is going to affect us, I don't know. But I got to tell you, the chilling effect on this station and others uh, has been palpable over the past few years, and it's uh, high time this got thrown out. Thank goodness justice has, at least for the time being, prevailed. Now let's hear from our old pal, America's foremost political comic, Mr. Will Durst. Hey guys. Will Durst here, wondering what is the deal with the Republican Party? All they care about is the rich. Rich, 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 rich. What they're doing now is blocking an unemployment benefits extension until Democrats come up with cuts in other programs to make it budget neutral. Which makes a certain amount of sense. You want to eat this week? Put that video game back on the shelf, mister. And don't give me that face. I'll give you something to cry about. The problem is Republicans never ever feel this way unless a Democrat is in the White House. Back when Bush was president, they couldn't give money away fast enough to rich people. A trillion for the pharmaceuticals here, a couple trillion for some wars there. Dick Cheney himself said, Ronald Reagan taught us deficits don't matter. We all know they hate giving money to poor people. And it's pretty easy to understand why. Poor people are icky. And they never know which fork to use. And those shoes... And most importantly, they seldom contribute to political campaigns, which the rich do, because they know that money gets you access, and access provides influence, and before you know it, you're in the back room of the Capitol Grill and your second picture of margaritas writing regulations that control your industry. 
That's why, although they like to talk the budget neutrality talk, they don't walk the budget neutrality walk. At the same time they tell the jobless to go fight with dogs for food, they lobby to extend Bush's tax cuts to the rich, expiring at the end of the year. And budget neutrality can take a flying leap off a short pier into a frozen lake of toxic sludge. See, tax cuts are different. That's not welfare for the rich. That's playing the magic note on the economic flute that calls for the trickle-down ferry to come carry us away to a nice warm pool. I don't know about you, but I'm getting a little tired of this whole being trickled-on deal. For Radio Parallax, I'm Will Durst. Always good to hear from Will. All right, let's take a short break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. 